For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. So as we return this morning to this segment of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, Paul's primary concern in this section of text is the apostasy and unbelief of his Jewish countrymen. Brethren, verse 1, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Now the issue at the heart of Paul's concern is their rejection of the gospel. They have stumbled at that stone of stumbling. They have fallen over the rock of offense and seeking to establish their own righteousness, which is through obedience to the law, they have willfully refused to submit themselves to that righteousness which comes from God as a gift of his grace through faith. That righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. In doing so, in rejecting that righteousness, in refusing to submit themselves to the righteousness of God, they have repudiated the only foundation upon which any hope for salvation may be built. They've rejected that foundation. They have rejected the person and work of their Messiah. They have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. For anyone in this world, for anyone in this life, for you here this morning, if you reject the Lord Jesus Christ, you're rejecting the only hope that you have. You have no other hope for heaven. There is one name given among men, given under heaven, among which that name, only one name by which we must be saved. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. You have that hope of salvation. God has set that foundation stone in Zion for the hope of his people. If you reject that, you have no hope. The Jews sought a righteousness, which is of the law. They sought a righteousness for themselves through their obedience to the law. They sought a righteousness through works of the law. And Paul says, Paul concludes, Christ is the end of that pursuit. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The Jews, like many religious formalists in our own day, the Jews like many who imagine themselves to be good in the sight of God, the Jews have placed their faith in a hopeless pursuit. They've, they've placed their faith in a dead end. It's not going to get them anywhere. For those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the end of that dead end, so to speak. He has opened a way. <laughs> he has made a way for his people to come to salvation. He is the end of that futile effort whereby men may attempt to attain or obtain to a justifying righteousness before God through works of the law. Jesus Christ is the end of that hopeless pursuit. It's in explanation of this truth then that Paul establishes this contrast between two principles. Two principles that we see in our text. The first we might refer to as a principle of law. Verse 5 Paul speaks of the righteousness which is of or through the law, that first principle. The second principle we might refer to as a principle of faith. In verse 6, 
Paul speaks of or refers to that righteousness, which is of or through the means of faith in Jesus Christ. That righteousness, which comes to us as a gift of God through the instrumentality of faith in Jesus Christ. In this principle, Paul is referring to the gospel. Paul is referring, verse 8, to that word of faith which we preach. He's referring to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these two principles are in complete opposition to one another. They are mutually exclusive, and it's not a polite disagreement. They are on polar opposite ends, if you will, of the universe. To choose works as a means by which you think you're going to be just in the sight of God to, to, to choose your good works, your good conduct, the good things that you do, to, to choose merit on the basis of your religiosity, to think for one moment that you're going to earn it, is to show contempt for the Lord Jesus Christ. To think that it's somehow, somehow just going to all work out in the end, that your good works are going to somehow outweigh your bad works, is to show contempt for the cross is to count the cross a, a common thing, to count the blood of the covenant, the blood that Jesus Christ shed for sinners, for sins, is to count his blood a common thing. Thing. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28, listen. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. You reject his law, you disobey his law, you turn your back on his law, you die on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Who has counted the blood of the covenant by which he was set apart, sanctified, a common thing, and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has done that? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. To turn your back on Jesus Christ is to do that. To turn your back on Jesus Christ is to consider the cross a meaningless thing. To turn your back on Jesus Christ is to consider the gospel a worthless thing, a common thing, right? To turn your back on Jesus Christ is to repudiate the gospel, is to show contempt for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the Jews have done. This is not a polite disagreement. This is what the Jews have done. And listen, this is what you have done. This is what you have done if you have rejected the testimony of God that God has provided of his own son. If you've rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, if you continue, if you continue to hear the gospel, to hear the good news, to hear what God has done for sinners, to hear the high cost of our redemption, to hear what Jesus Christ has done. If you continue to reject that, you are rejecting the gospel. You are rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. You are counting the blood of the covenant, a common thing. Jesus Christ died for sinners. Turn from your sin and put your faith and trust in him. Do you see? You cannot continue down that futile path. Turn from your sin and trust him. It's in explaining their treason against God that Paul turns to a text that the Jews consider themselves to be authoritative. He meets them where they are, so to speak, by turning to the text of the Old Testament. He appeals to the scriptures of the Old Testament, not simply to any Old Testament author, mind you, but to the great lawgiver himself. He turns to Moses. And Moses himself in the Old Testament speaks of both principles, the principle of law and the word of faith, which we preach. He speaks legally, if you will, of that principle whereby people pursue a righteousness through the law, and he speaks of the gospel. 
Moses himself speaks of that principle of law, whereby the entire world is rendered guilty before God. And he speaks of that principle of faith, whereby the righteousness that we need in order to be saved is given to us as a gift when we place our trust in Jesus Christ. Now, in consideration of that first principle, Paul refers to the words of Moses from Leviticus 18. In Romans chapter 10, verse 5, Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. Moses writes about that righteousness, and he writes there in Leviticus 18. The law demands perfect, complete, and universal obedience to his precepts. When you've sinned against God, you have broken his law. The one who sins, the soul shall surely die. The law demands perfect, complete, universal obedience to his precepts. The law demands a just retribution for sin. Under that legal principle, the one who renders perfect obedience is just. The one who renders imperfect obedience, which is a polite way of saying, describing our complete disobedience of the law. The one who who sins is considered unrighteous, unjust, according to the law. The man who does those things, Moses says, shall live by them. Covenant life, covenant blessings flow to those who obey the terms of that covenant. The one who sins is cut off and atonement is needed. Paul says, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. We have, over a long time in this church, we have emphasized... As we do gospel light, we've emphasized that legal principle. Why? Why is it necessary? Why does the Bible emphasize that legal principle? Why must we come to an understanding of the law? Why must we allow the law to expose our sin? It's so that we'll understand our need and understand and appropriate and embrace what Jesus Christ has done for sinners. Apart from that, we're a bunch of blockheads. We need to understand our sins so that we embrace through faith the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ so that you can be saved. How many people, how many people have you witnessed to over the years? How many people do you know? They persist in this life of rebellion against Jesus Christ thinking that everything's okay. It's not okay. You've sinned against God and your sin requires the death penalty. You will spend an eternity in hell unless you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Unless you know you have terminal cancer, you will not take the cure. God did not come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance. He did not come for those who are well. Those who are well have no need of a physician. He came to call those who are sinners, call those who are sick, those who are diseased, those who are marching on the path to death. And he came to call them to repentance. Moses understands both of those principles. We need to understand both of those principles. In consideration of that second principle, Paul then refers to the the words of Moses, Moses from Deuteronomy 9 and Deuteronomy 30. Moses understood this principle well. Romans chapter 10, verse 6. But... In contrast to that first principle, the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? Do not think for a moment that you can earn heaven by your own righteousness. You cannot. That is the utter folly of all false religion. 
That is the utter folly of Islam. That is the utter folly of Hinduism. That is the utter folly of Roman Catholicism. That is the utter folly of Mormonism. That is the utter folly of the Seventh-day Adventists. That is the utter folly of every single false religion. You cannot gain, attain to a righteousness through obedience to the law. Jesus Christ is the end of righteousness through the law for everyone who believes in him. This is the word of faith which we preach. Moses speaks there in terms that are synonymous with faith. He speaks of loving the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. He speaks of trusting in him and believing in him. He speaks of the fruits of faith, faith in bearing the fruit of obedience and wholly following him like Caleb, like Joshua who entered the promised land. We saw those two principles explained in the words of Moses in part one last week. And not so incidentally, by the way, not so incidentally, Christ perfectly fulfilled the first principle so that you and I could have access to the second one. You see, Christ perfectly fulfilled the first. So here is Paul's point to the Jews then. Here is Paul's point to the Jews. Moses didn't only preach those words of law written on tablets of stone. Okay, The words of Deuteronomy do not merely represent that legal principle. But Moses pointed the people to that righteousness which is from God through faith in Jesus Christ. And it only comes by grace through faith in Christ alone. That word of faith which we preach, even Moses said, is very near to you. It's in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. So it's here then in our text of Romans 10 that we run into now a very interesting explanation from the Apostle Paul about what he's talking about here. Look at verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, that first principle, the man who does those things shall live by them. But in contrast, the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? What does that word of faith say? What does that command say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach, so that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Praise God. Now, if you remember our brief look at Deuteronomy 30 last week, you might raise, in considering this text, you might raise an interpretive question. Where in the text of Deuteronomy 30 is Paul seeing that reference to Jesus Christ? How does he get there? How do we get there? If we're going to understand the text, how do we get there? In Romans chapter 10, verse 6, Paul quotes Deuteronomy, and then he adds an interpretive parenthesis. Look at, De- at Romans chapter 10, verse 6. He says, who will ascend into heaven? Don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is, in parenthesis, to bring Christ down from above. Or, verse 7, who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. We want to understand what Paul's saying so we can understand the text. So let's take a closer look, okay? Keep your ribbon in Romans chapter 10. Put on your thinking cap and turn with me to Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30. Let's think through where Paul is going with this. Remember, Paul is speaking to the Jews, and he's speaking to people 
that know their Old Testament. They have been brought up in the Old Testament. They've been given the oracles of God. They've taken uh, their understanding, their knowledge of God's word very seriously. So they know their Old Testament. In other words, Paul is not going to merely lift little phrases here and there out of context and proof text them to explain his point. Paul's not going to do that. When Paul references a text, he references the entire context and he takes that entire context and brings it to bear on the point that he's making. He does that with Deuteronomy chapter 30. Look at verse 11. For this commandment, that word is singular, and the commandment that, that Moses is referring to there is the commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. That is the greatest commandment. Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. First and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. Right? This is a fulfillment, if you will, a fulfillment of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. That singular commandment, Moses says, verse 11, which I command you today to love the Lord with all your heart and soul, is not too mysterious for you. It's not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea, nor is it way over there. And frankly, what that word for sea is, it's a word that means the abyss. So think of the depths of the sea when you read that. Nor is it in the deepest part of the sea. Heard the Marianas Trench is like seven miles down. <laughs> Nor is it in the abyss, so to speak. A word meaning sheol. A word referring to the grave. Nor is it beyond the sea or in the abyss. that You should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word, the word of faith which we preach... That word, that commandment, singular, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, that word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may do it. Now, we're going to look at what that means, and then we want to apply it so we understand it. Notice the difference with me. Notice the difference. You've got your ribbon in Romans chapter 10, verse 6. Deuteronomy 30, verse 12 it is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us? And now notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 6. Paul says, do not say in your heart. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4. We looked at that last week, right? That's a quote from Deuteronomy 9, 4. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? Don't think, don't come to that conclusion. Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Well, Paul, how did you get from Deuteronomy 30, verse 12 to Romans chapter 10, verse 6, right? Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 13. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us? But Paul says, Romans chapter 10, verse 7, who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. What's going on here, right? In Romans 10, Paul is quoting from a text contained in a Jewish targum. It's contained in a Jewish targum. A targum is a Jewish interpretive translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Aramaic. I want you to think with me now. Hang in there with me, okay? The language of many people coming out of captivity in Babylon they stayed in captivity, many of them, for a very long time. When the exiles became, became, com began coming back out of captivity, 
They didn't speak Hebrew. They spoke, they spoke Aramaic. So the rabbis then, after the exile, when people became, began coming back into the land from exile speaking Aramaic, the rabbis took the Torah, the first five books of the law, the, the book of Moses, so to speak. They took the Torah and they translated those books, including Deuteronomy, into Aramaic. And they did so with interpretive helps so that people could learn the word of God. Interpretive notes placed into the text. It's a little like having a study Bible with the notes woven into the text for you, right? These parenthetical statements, if you will. Now, you won't see a parenthetical statement in the Targum, and sometimes you have to look at the Targum and then look at the original to know where the explanation is and where the original text is, Okay. But that's what a targum is. A targum is an Aramaic interpretive translation of the Hebrew Old Testament text for Jews who spoke Aramaic. In Romans 10, Paul is referring to what is called the Jerusalem targum. It's a targum that would have been read in Jewish synagogues all over Israel in the first century, a targum which Paul, the Jews, would have been very familiar with. And follow along with me. He quotes the targum using their own interpretive understanding of the text to explain it rightly to them. So look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 12. Look at Deuteronomy 30, 12, and notice how the Jerusalem Targum explains the text. If you're looking at Deuteronomy 30, verse 12, the Targum reads this way, the law is not in the heavens. It's interesting, isn't it? That singular word, that singular command which is the word of faith, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, the Jews interpreted that as being the law of Moses. The law is not in the heavens that thou shouldst say, oh, that we had one like Moshe, Moses. Oh, that we had a prophet like Moses, the prophet. One like Moses to ascend into heaven and bring it to us and make us hear its commands that we may do them. Oh, that we had a prophet like Moses who would go into the heavens and bring it down to us that we could do it. That's how they interpreted Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 12. The Jews took the word of faith from the mouth of Moses. They turned it on its head and they interpreted it legalistically. And they referenced in that interpretation, they even referenced it messianically. They referenced the prophet like Moses. The Jews looked for a promised prophet from God. Moses had promised them, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses promises, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, and him you shall hear. There is in Moses, in Deuteronomy 18, a prophecy of the coming Messiah, and the Jewish Targum, right here in Deuteronomy 30, references the coming Messiah. But what do the Jews do with the text? They flip it on its head, they interpret it legalistically and say, oh, that we could do the law that one like Moses, that a prophet like Moses would ascend into heaven and bring it down to us that we may do it. <laughs> so what does Paul do? Paul, in Romans chapter 10, explains the text to them as it is meant to be understood using their own targum. He explains the text with reference to faith in the promised Messiah. Romans chapter 10, verse 6, do not say in your heart, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Who will ascend into heaven? That prophet like Moses. Don't say that in your heart. Those things 
pertaining to life and godliness, those things pertaining to grace and mercy, those things pertaining to the gospel, that word of faith which we preach is not beyond our reach in the heavens. Don't say in your heart, oh, that there was a prophet like Moses to bring it down to us that could ascend into heaven and bring it down so that we could do it. Don't say that in your heart. Why? Because to deny it, to say that would be to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. To say that would be to think faithlessly. That's the cry of unbelief. The word of faith, that word of faith which we preach, has been brought near. Why? Because Jesus Christ has come down from heaven. Jesus Christ has come down from heaven with that word, that word of faith, which is very near you now in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. Lord Jesus Christ has brought it near to us in himself. You see how they misinterpreted the text and how we need to understand it. Don't say, it's too far off for me. No, Jesus Christ has brought it near. Don't say, it's too mysterious. Don't be like a Jew. Oh, that we had the prophet like Moses who would ascend into heaven and bring it to us. He has come. The Lord Jesus Christ came from heaven and he preached that word to us. We have it in our hands. God's word revealed to us. Amen? It's awesome. It's almost like Paul is, is using their own targum against them. Right? They think, they understand it, and they don't. And Paul is correcting their interpretation of it. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 13. As you're looking at Deuteronomy 30, verse 13, notice how the Jerusalem targum translates that text, interprets that text. Neither is the law. And again, that word of faith interpreted by the Jews legalistic. It's the law. It's the law of Moses. Neither is the law beyond the great sea or beyond the abyss that thou shouldst say, oh, that we had one like Jonah the prophet who could descend into the abyss, a word for Sheol, a word for the grave, and bring it up to us and make us hear its commands that we may do them. See how the Jews were looking at the text? The Jews looked for one greater than Jonah. They had been promised a Messiah. And they viewed that Messiah as one greater than Jonah. They viewed that Messiah as a prophet greater than Moses. They were looking for him. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. They were looking for a Jonah. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they, those Ninevites, repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. So once again, the Jews took a text that was meant to be understood through the lens of faith in the Messiah. They even looked at it messianically. <laughs> a text that should have pointed them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, faith in their promised Messiah, and they interpreted it and they understood it legalistically. So Paul takes their own targum and explains it how it should be understood. He gives us the proper interpretation. Don't think, don't say in your heart, right? Don't think for one minute, oh, oh, that we had a prophet like Jonah. Oh, that we had someone who could go into the abyss and bring that up to us so that we could do it, so that we could understand, oh, that we had one like that. <laughs> to think that way would be to deny that Jesus Christ died and would be to deny that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. It would be to think faithlessly. 
That is the cry of unbelief. That word of faith, the word of the gospel, which we preach, has been brought near to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. It has been. He has been raised from the dead. He has brought that word near to us. It is in your mouth. It is in your heart that you may believe upon him. We're sticking it in your mouth and sticking it in your heart this morning is the preaching of his word. The spirit of God taking that word and applying it to your heart, applying it to your mind. It is near you. It is in your mouth, in your heart, that you may believe upon him, that you may do it, that you may love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you may believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said to the Jews, you search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. (laughs) Here, all the way back in Deuteronomy, in their own targums, the words of Moses, the great lawgiver, testifying of the Lord Jesus Christ, testifying of that word of faith, that word of the gospel that would come, by which the people of God would be saved. The righteousness of faith speaks in this way. You don't need to ascend into heaven and drag the word down for us. We don't need anyone to ascend into heaven and to drag that word down to us. You do not need to descend into the abyss and to drag that word up from the dead. We don't need anyone to go into the abyss and to drag that word up for us from the dead. Jesus Christ came down from heaven. Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. Jesus Christ has drawn us near to himself, has drawn near to us in that word which we preach. The righteousness that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ, that word of faith from the mouth of Moses, what does it say? Romans chapter 10, verse 8. That word, and it would be right to think of that word uh, also as the object of our faith, the word, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Logos. That word is near you. That word of faith on the lips of Moses, that word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That word of faith which Moses spoke has drawn near to you in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Murray said that word is not the word which faith utters. That's not the word which faith utters. It's the word to which faith is directed. It is the word preached. It is the message preached, and it is the message which brings the gospel into our mouth and into our heart. Such, verse 9, that message is brought near to you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's brought into your mouth, into your heart, so to speak, such that, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. Moses and Paul are both persuaded that the only way in which guilty sinners may be saved is through the righteousness of faith, through the righteousness which comes to us as a gift of God through faith. Turn from your sin. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. Do you see? It's not too mysterious for you. It's not too mysterious. It's repentance and faith. Turn from your sin. Trust in him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Turn from your sin. Trust in him. It's not too far off. 
It's not too mysterious. Why does Paul go to all this trouble? Why does Paul contrast these two principles from the writings of Moses, from their own Targum? That legal principle of righteousness through the law on the one hand, right? That gospel principle of righteousness through faith in Christ on the other hand. Paul does this because Paul is absolutely convinced that the Old Testament teaches the very same way of salvation as the New Testament. The only way that we're saved, the only way that we can have hope of eternal life, hope of that inheritance promised to Abraham and all Abraham and all of his seed, the only way that we can have hope is through the Lord Jesus Christ. A righteousness imputed to the believer through faith in Jesus Christ. There was in the words of Moses, and there was in the heart and mind of Moses, the anticipation of a day in which the people of God would hear the words of God's promised prophet. Moses looked forward to that day. A prophet greater than Moses, a prophet greater than Jonah. And on the basis of his obedience, on the basis of his death, righteousness is freely offered through faith. Moses anticipated a day in which God himself would circumcise their heart. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, that God would circumcise their heart. Moses anticipated it in, in a, a day in which the people of God with circumcised hearts would love the Lord their God with all, all their heart and with all their soul. Moses anticipated a day in which by virtue of that new heart, they would in fact obey his commandments and obey his statutes and judgments and would do them. Moses anticipated that day. Moses anticipated a day in the words of Paul from Romans chapter eight, verse four, Moses anticipated a day in which the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the spirit. Old Testament religion, just like New Testament religion, is a religion of the heart. It is not a religion of dead ritual. It is not a heartless religion. It is not a religion of going through the motions, checking off the boxes. It is a religion of loving the Lord your God. Old Testament religion. And the, the, the true Israelite, the true Israelite is committed heart and soul to the God of Israel. The true Israelite devoted heart and soul to the God of Israel. Therefore, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Got to handle the law lawfully. By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Now, there's an implication from the testimony of Moses that we should be clear about. It's an implication that we need to clearly see that is from the testimony of Moses and from the testimony of Paul. And that implication is this. The faith that Moses spoke of that word of faith, which we, which we preached, which Paul preached, that word of faith, which is the gospel, that faith is a justifying or a saving faith. The faith which Moses preached was a justifying 
or a saving faith. It is through the means of this kind of faith that we receive a justifying righteousness. Here's the implication of what Moses taught. Not all faith is saving faith. Not all faith is saving faith. Let that sink in for a moment. James chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Not all faith is saving faith. In the words of the 19th century Scottish pastor, Robert Johnston, the demons believe, but their belief exerts no beautifying effect on their character. Their belief awakens no love or reverence for the one true God. And as their character remains unimproved by their faith, so it is also, according to the infinite rectitude or rightness of the divine administration, so it is with their position and with their prospects. As their so-called faith or as their character remains unimproved by their so-called faith, their position remains unimproved by their so-called faith, and their prospects for the future remain unimproved by their so-called faith. That's what the pastor is saying. Not all faith is saving faith. Moses and then Paul in Romans chapter 10, they point to a faith that is of a certain quality. Inwardly, it is a faith that exerts a beautifying effect on your character, to borrow the words of the pastor, okay? It is a faith, in the words of Moses, that is synonymous with loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Outwardly, it is a faith that exerts a manifest effect on your conduct. It is a faith that produces the fruit of obedience to God. Many, 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 many walk around with little more than the faith of a demon. And they believe that they have eternal life. I think soberly with me for a minute. Stop arguing with me in your mind. That's what you're doing. <laughs> and listen to what Paul and what Moses are saying through the text of Scripture. Many walk around with little more than the faith of a demon. The demons believe. What is it that distinguishes your faith from the faith, so to speak, or the belief of a demon? They believe that there is one God. Many walk around with little more than the faith of a demon, and they believe that they have eternal life. Moses says, in no uncertain terms, Deuteronomy 30, Moses says that God will circumcise your heart. And what does he circumcise your heart for? He circumcises your heart to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. And he circumcises your heart so that you will again obey the voice of the Lord your God and do all his commandments, which I command you today. And the Lord will make you abound in all the work of your hand. In other words, that faith, which is a saving faith, that faith, which is a justifying faith, that faith, which is authored in the heart of man by God himself, is a faith that is the fruit of a circumcised heart. You must be born again. 
you must be born again. It is a faith that is the fruit of a circumcised heart, and it is a faith that produces the fruit of love to the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul. That's a faith that produces love. And it's a faith, according to Moses, and it's a faith, according to Paul, that bears the fruit of obedience to his commands, such that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. Why? Because he has circumcised our heart. He has given us a new heart, and he has indwelt us with his Spirit to walk according to his statutes and judgments and to do them. Paul, Moses, the apostles and the prophets cannot make it any clearer. And yet there is this antinomian spirit in our age that denies, denies, denies the fruits of faith. People, it's easy, right? People want to believe that, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And they believe in Jesus like they believe in Abraham Lincoln. I believe in Jesus. And besides, didn't the Bible say that faith in Jesus Christ, by faith you will be saved. Yes, the Bible says, by faith you will be saved. But the Bible teaches faith of a particular character, faith of a a particular quality, faith of a particular kind. And many, we have this self-justifying enemy in our own breast. Your heart, your heart, the prophet says, Jeremiah, is deceitful above all things. Your heart will convince you that you're entirely okay. Don't take that from your heart. Take it from the word of God, right? Allow the word of God to convince you. Allow the spirit of God to convince you. Take it from the word of God. Your soul, we're talking about life and death. We're talking about heaven and hell. We're talking about the thing that is most precious to you above all other things, your soul. We saw that this uh, example, this principle last week in the example of the Israelites from Deuteronomy chapter one. Think about that with me. They stand at the border of the land that God had promised to give them. Having experienced all that God had done them and done for them in Egypt, had done for them in the wilderness to that point. And yet for all that, did they believe God? Did they believe in God? Yes, they did. (laughs) They saw his amazing works on their behalf. They saw him pour out the plagues on Egypt. They heard his audible voice from atop the mountain. They saw the pillar of cloud by day. They saw the pillar of fire by night. He dropped manna out of heaven for them. And yet for all that, they refused to trust God in obedience to his commands. And God swore in his wrath, not a one of them would enter the land which he had promised to give to their fathers. They died in the wilderness, and Hebrews chapter 3 says that they died because of their unbelief. In other words, in other words, unbelief bears the fruit of sin. Unbelief bears the fruit of disobedience. Unbelief bears the fruit of sins of omission and sins of commission. It's not just thou shalt nots in the Bible. The Bible is filled with thou shalts. And that's not burdensome to the believer. Why? Because we love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul, and we desire to obey him. God says it. I want to obey him. You want to obey him. That's the quality of that saving, justifying faith that is authored in the heart of his people by God himself, by his spirit. There was a marked difference between the faith of Caleb, the faith of Joshua, 
and the so-called faith of all their fellow Israelites. There was a difference. And that difference between those two faiths meant the difference between heaven and hell. That difference between those two faiths was the difference between life and death. What kind of faith do you have? What is the character of your faith? The faith that you're putting in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Of course, those Israelites believed in God. They heard his voice. Of course, they believed him. They saw his works. But theirs was a fruitless faith. And God says they did not enter in because of unbelief. No faith at all, in other words. Matthew chapter 7, verse 22. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Do they believe in God? Of course they do. Lord, Lord, they're crying out to him. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who what? He who does the will of my Father in heaven. Oh, Jesus Christ is right here in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount preaching works righteousness. Really? <laughs> no. He's preaching the fruits of faith. <laughs> it's faith of a particular quality, faith of a particular character. Many presume, presume, presume to turn to Jesus Christ in faith, and then they continue to deny, deny his word. They continue to neglect his word. They continue to live for themselves. Their character, ultimately, and when I say that, it's um, an alcoholic. A, an unbelieving alcoholic can go to AA, get himself clean, and quote-unquote repent of being an alcoholic. Doesn't mean he's going to heaven. Right? You can turn from certain sins. You get fed up enough with your life. You can make a moral reformation. You can have a moral reformation, but it's not a whole-souled, whole-heart transformation of your life. The character and their conduct remains largely unimproved Godward, in a Godward way, right? Toward God, eh. as do their position and their prospects. <laughs> so then, when Moses speaks of the word that is very near you, that is in your mouth and in your heart, he speaks of a faith in God that produces fruit, the fruit of commitment to his word and obedience to his commands. You otherwise really can't explain the transformation in your life if, if you've turned from sin and put your faith and trust in God. You would look back at your conversion, so to speak, or when God justified you, converted you, and say, I had no interest in the things of God, and then that was an all-consuming interest. I had really um, no hatred for my sin, and now I despise my sin, and I love righteousness. Um, I made provision for my sin. Now I'm doing everything I can to avoid it. I was once not in the battle against my sin. Now I'm embattled over it every day. Right? There's just a difference in your life, a transformation that takes place. Moses speaks of a word that produces that fruit. Moses' understanding of this command, Moses' understanding of that faith was that it is not too mysterious for you. That's why it's repentant faith. Right? It's not too mysterious for you. It's not too transcendent, not too inaccessible to us. This is what Paul says about the gospel. He says about that same word of faith, the righteousness, which is through faith in Jesus Christ. He says that in verse eight, what does it say? The word is near you. The word is in your mouth. 
The word is in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. The gospel is not too mysterious. It is not too transcendent. It is not too inaccessible. The word of faith which we preach very simply calls you to trust in Christ as your Savior and to follow him as your Lord. The gospel which we preach very simply calls you to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and follow him as your Lord. Now, that word of faith that we preach or that word of the gospel is characterized or even summarized by many accompanying fruits or realities. Think with me. That faith which is preached is characterized by many fruits and realities. We've talked about one of them, obedience to his commands, right? The character of that faith, love for the Lord our God. That faith characterized, even summarized, by many accompanying fruits or realities. In our text, in verse 9, Paul focuses his attention upon the lordship of Jesus Christ and upon the resurrection, the Lord's resurrection from the dead. What is it that is in the mouth of the one who has placed true and genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? What's in his mouth? It's the confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. What characterizes his speech? What's on his lips? What's in his conversation? The lordship of, the, of Jesus Christ. Confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. What is it that is in the heart of the one who has placed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? This kind of faith. This gift of God faith. This justifying faith. What is it that is in the heart of the one who has placed that kind of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? It's an assurance that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. You see, it produces both an inward assurance, an inward belief, and an outward manifestation of fruits. An inward belief and an outward manifestation. Inward realities and outward realities. Such that, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you have those fruits of a justifying righteousness, a justifying faith which comes only from God. You see? It's far different from that easy believism. We're going to talk about this more next week. Okay, that's next week. It's far different than that easy believism kind of notion. I confess Jesus Christ as Lord, and you're just automatic, you know. You could teach your parrot to say Jesus Christ is Lord. It does not mean that the parrot is going to heaven. Okay? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, if that reality of Jesus Christ is Lord, if that, it's what comes out of the heart that comes out of the mouth, right? What proceeds forth from the heart of man that comes out of his mouth. It's overflow of the heart with which we speak. If it's in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, Jesus Christ is Lord is on your conversation. It's on your lips. It's on your mind. It's in your conversation. If that's in your heart, that faith is in your heart. If you believe that you have an inward persuasion that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead for our justification. Four, verse 10, with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. We'll talk about that more next week. Moses and Paul are speaking of both an inward and an outward reality. Moses speaks of that which is in your mouth and in your heart. Paul now speaks of that which is in your mouth and in your heart. In verse 10, Paul places these accompanying fruits of faith in their logical order, they're in their logical order in verse 10. With the heart one believes, 
unto the free gift of a justifying righteousness. And then, as a fruit of that faith, that quality of faith, he confesses Jesus as Lord. With the heart he believes, with the mouth he confesses Jesus as Lord. It's a faith, brothers and sisters, of a particular character. It's a faith that grips the heart. It's a faith that fills our conversation. It's a faith that resides in our innermost being. And it's a faith that pours out of the heart into our speech and into our conduct, our words and our deeds. What is the character of your faith? We come back to that question. What is the character of your faith? Many say that they love his word, but they don't read. They don't study. They don't meditate on his word. His word is not taking up residence in their heart. His word is not dwelling in them richly. They don't take it into their heart. As such, it isn't in their understanding and it isn't on their conversation. So what does that say about their professed love for his word? There is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't love his word. Let's just put that off to the side altogether. There's no such thing as a Christian who does not love the word of God. That would be an absurdity. Those are the very words of the living God to us. So the Christian is going to say, I love his word. What if you say, what if you profess to love his word, but you have no interest in reading it, meditating on it, it hasn't taken up residence in your heart? What if that's the condition? What if that's the state? What if that's where you are this morning? What does that say about your professed love for his word or your professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? That communicates, doesn't it? a quality or a character to your faith, to your so-called faith. Now, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that we're going to go through periods of time where maybe emotionally we're not caught up with our confession. We know, the Christian knows that the word of God is more important than our necessary food. We know that. We acknowledge that. But sometimes there's all kinds of things that that get in the way. And we go through periods where we have difficulty. But what does the Christian do? Christian comes to an acknowledgement. It's in his heart. It's in his mind. What does he do? He repents of that neglect and he's back to the word of God, hiding it in his heart that he might not sin against him. Right? We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about direction. Right? Not perfection, direction. Many say, many say that they love him. Oh, I love God. But what does God's word say? Right? Many say that they love him, but they don't obey him. They ignore what he tells them to do for their good. They ignore it. They don't love his people because they're not really in fellowship with his people. And, you know, the Lord's day is a, is a day off. We're going to check that box. You know, we're going to go do what we're supposed to do. They'd rather get a head start on their week. But they can't say with a clear conscience before God that they would obviously call the Sabbath a delight. Because if they delighted in the Sabbath, they would do what God has said for our good to do on the Sabbath. They don't do that because it's not a delight to them. What does that say about their professed love for him? What does that say about their so-called faith, the quality or the character of their faith? The word of faith which we preach, is not too mysterious for you. It's not too far off. The gospel is not too mysterious. It is not too transcendent. It's not too inaccessible for us. It very simply calls you to repentance and faith. It calls you to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. 
to abandon your life to him and for him. You are not your own. And calls that faith to be a repentant faith, a turning from sin. Calls us to trust in him. In the words of Moses, it calls us to love him, heart, soul, mind, and strength. He is worthy of that love. It is irrational that we don't love him as we should. Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, I pray that by the testimony of your word, these truths, that word of faith which Paul preached, that word of faith which Moses preached, that word of faith preached by your apostles and prophets, that word of faith upon which the foundation of the church is built, that word of faith which we preach, that we see in your word, I pray that that word would take deep root in our heart. And not a single person would leave here somehow deceived that that faith doesn't produce those fruits which you say it will, <laughs> doesn't produce those fruits which you command, that having commanded them, you graciously supply them and you change us, you transform us, you conform us into the image of your son. You give us a new heart. You indwell us with your spirit so that we might produce the fruits of your spirit to your glory. Help us to understand these things. Let us not say, oh, it's too difficult or too far off or too transcendent. You've said it's faithless to think that way. The Lord Jesus Christ has brought it near to us. May we turn to him in repentant faith. The Lord Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. May we return, may we, we return to him in repentance and faith and trust him. And I pray, Lord, that you would save your elect, that you would save sinners, that you would impute to them the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that you would impute their sin to, to him, that we, he would have died at Calvary, bearing their sins for your everlasting praise and glory, for the everlasting praise and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, to the everlasting praise and glory of the work of your spirit within us. And may it be, Lord, to the everlasting good of your people, those who will inherit the promises, the gracious promises that you made to Abraham and to his seed through the person and work of your own son. We love you, Lord. We know that we don't love you perfectly. We will one day when you glorify us and we're free from sin. But we know that we don't love you perfectly. Help us to love you more. Help us to grow in our understanding of that love. Help us to grow in our expressions of that love. Help us to grow in our faith. And assure us, Lord, through the fruits that that faith produces, assure our hearts that we are yours. May your spirit witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, joint heirs with our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this blessed hope of the church. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF.
It would be a joy to have you worship with us.